Everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. Uh, you are listening to Black on the Air. Um, man, there's so much going on every week. It's hard to even... It's hard to even figure out what to weigh in. I didn't get a chance to last week. We aired uh, the live talks LA that I do now and then. Usually I do it in front of an audience. And last week we had uh, Michael Lewis. So it was with them. So I didn't really have a chance to weigh in. I wanted to just thank white people for celebrating Juneteenth. I thought that was very very nice of you. (laughs) I love that black people... Before this, most black people really didn't care that much about Juneteenth. I mean, it was nice. We acknowledged it. I learned about it when I was a kid, you know, but we never celebrated it. But it was so fun to get white people to really take it arguably more seriously than I think most of us have. Some people really do celebrate, especially in the South, you know, especially in Texas where it was relevant. Or I should say more relevant than anywhere else because that's where it happened. But it looks like we're on our way to a permanent Juneteenth holiday. So there you go. Well done, everybody. Well done. Makes my heart happy. Um, so look, I don't have a lot of time, unfortunately. I'll make this kind of brief today. But you know what I did want to talk about? I just wanted to talk a little bit about, how can I put this? Um, I guess the difference between being <laughs> being mad and upset about something and then figuring out what to do about something I think those are two different things, you know, and I think, I think it's good if they're in two different buckets because I think they come from two different places. I think the act of being angry about something doesn't necessarily mean we have the prescription for the solution. It may, those that are fed up may have the prescription or they may not, or a lot of people may be mad at something and those people that are mad may have different ideas of how to go forward. And I feel right now what I'm concerned about is that, you know, I feel like everybody's hearts are in the right place when it comes to the protest. But I'm not sure if we have clear thinking or consensus when it comes to the, the prescriptions, you know. And this is just my opinion. I could be wrong. And by the way, this is just my opinion. So I don't know. I, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, it's very, trust me, it's very possible that I don't know what I'm talking about. So this is, I'm just putting this out as my opinion. And you know what it is? Here's what it really is. It's more of a cautionary tale more than anything else. I just want to make sure that we all have skin in the game in a way forward because we're all in this country together. And I think having skin in the game in the way forward is the way to go. Now, in the way backwards in terms of the blame and, you know, the upset and all that, it's a pretty one-sided game, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, I don't know. So I understand that, you know, like I'll give you an example and I'm not picking on Black Lives Matter, by the way. Um, I'm just using this as an example. It's nothing against them. Like, for instance, I, like most people, I completely agree with Black Lives Matter, you know, with that slogan, Black Lives Matter. And what is the meaning behind it, the importance of it, the uh, thoroughness of its comment in today's society as an exclamation of being fed up with the treatment by the police. You know, that exclamation, it's almost a breathless exclamation to me, Black Lives Matter. It's really, I think it's much better than the way that it's been knocked let should say Black Lives Matter too. Yeah, but there's something very simple about Black Lives Matter that I believe from a writing, this is from a writing point of view, I think is very elegant, very strong, and very important. And by the way, the reason why you can tell it is all the people that have knocked the phrase Black Lives Matter use it in other ways. Well, blue lives matter. Well, these lives matter and everything else matters. But as soon as you say Black Lives Matter, people have a problem with it. That just tells you how good it is. That makes people uncomfortable. But then they come up with their own. That is exactly the same thing, right? Okay. Just because I believe that doesn't mean I agree with everything the organization called Black Lives Matter has prescribed for the solution. Those are two different things. And by the way, I'm only using this as an example. I got nothing against them. They may be absolutely right. And it's not just Black Lives Matter. It might be some other organization. Those are two different things. Okay. Like, for instance, the people that are calling for defund the police, 
that might be a good idea. It's possible. I just don't know when it was decided that that was the idea. Was was there like a meeting call that I was not I was not invited to? Did it make it to my junk email? I mean, where did that come? When did we decide that that was the way to go? You know, or the the saying of get rid of the police, which, you know, is even more extreme because there are many areas where they really do need police. You know, they need good police doing the right thing. Fix the police, of course. I don't think anybody could disagree with, and we're all saying how to fix the police. And by the way, this is not me attacking defund the police as an idea. That whatever is behind that may be valid. I'm just saying, why do I have to automatically agree with that? Because I agree with the other thing. That's all I'm calling out for, you know. And what I'm concerned about is that there are other ideas that are ideas that I don't think a lot of people might agree with, but people are kind of speaking for the cause, which concerns me. Like, for instance, you know, the group in Seattle that just decided to take over that square, you know, and and basically I think someone got killed there. It kind of disbanded after a while. I don't believe <laughs> that's not what we're trying to do. I don't think what, what the idea of what black people are looking for after that George Floyd murder is to take over squares of town and have people living in tents, you know, and just have kind of a different kind of lawlessness. I don't think what we're looking for, I think we're looking for smart, intelligent, cooperative ways to fix this inherent, this problem that we've had for a long time. And that is, you know, many times it's the police in the case of handling black people just jumping to abuse and things like that and the abuse that it's had on the community and those types of things. It feels like we need solutions to that. I think that don't get rid of the police completely. And I'm not saying that all these things are saying that I'm just concerned about, here's what I'm really concerned about. I'm concerned about groups that have particular agendas, hijacking black pain. That's what I'm really concerned about because black pain is real. And it's enduring. It's been a long time coming. And just because someone's agenda may be to do something specific with government, whether it's a leftist agenda or a rightist agenda, doesn't mean they get to hijack the black pain of this moment to get that agenda across. We still need a consensus with where we're going here. And that consensus, first of all, involves the entire black community, the church community, the secular community. We've got people in showbiz getting together. There's a lot of aspects of the black community, middle class, working class, you know, a lot of people need to have a say in this game, not just activists or activist organizations, because acting purely, um, and I'm not saying I got to get these words right, because I want to make sure you guys completely understand where I'm coming from, you know, because it sounds like I'm throwing shade on, on this, but I'm really not. I'm just making a, a case for clarity is what I'm making a case for. And trying to create a distinction. Like, I'll give you another example. There's a desire right now to get rid of anything from the past that is negative in terms of race relations, you know. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Like, for instance, like, get rid of Gone with the Wind. We don't need it. Don't need to see it. I feel a little differently about that. To me, a movie like Gone with the Wind has receipts in it. That, that to me has evidence of how black people were treated in cinema, how history was being rewritten by whites in the movies. There are many examples that I don't want birth of a nation to go away. I want people to know how we were depicted in the movies of what the inciting incidents were to the resurgence of the Klan and that sort of thing. People need to have these receipts. We can't get rid of the receipts in the culture. Getting rid of a Confederate statue is different. There's no reason why we should be worshiping and honoring you know, you know, figures of people that were, of course, traitors to the United States. That I agree with. But can we have a discussion <laughs> once again? Can you invite me to the meeting where we decide to get rid of all the other things that may just be an uncomfortable reminder of how black people were treated? Sometimes those uncomfortable reminders are important. So this kind of shit doesn't happen again or doesn't happen in the other group. And so we're clear about these things that have happened. So that's all I'm asking for. It can be a different rewriting of history, I think, you know, to get rid of it completely. So that's all I got to say. 
just some cautionary tales. Like I said, these are just my opinions. I'm not saying I think we should do this instead of that. You know, some of the ideas that people are putting forward are probably good ideas. Some have a lot of good ideas in them. I just want to make sure that we all get a seat at this table because this is a very important moment right now. Very, very important moment. Um, All right. That's all I got. If you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer and complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. And you'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You'll also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So go to GetRoman.com Larry to try out a three-month supply of nightly defense for just $5. It's free to chat with the doctor and your first order is just $5. That's GetRoman.com Larry. That's G-E-T-R-O-M-A-N dot com slash Larry. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. All right, welcome back. Um, very happy to have on the show um, a very celebrated author. This man has done so many things, but uh, his contribution to the cultural landscape has been fantastic. His latest book, uh, Deacon King Kong, is winner of the National Book Award and is in Oprah's book club, which I was kicked out of because I didn't read anything, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, James McBride, welcome to Black on the Air, James. Appreciate you being on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to uh, to be here. Yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure and an honor, uh, my friend, to have you have you on the show. Uh, congrats, first of all, on the book, on your long line of successes. You just keep uh, turning out gems, which is uh, got to feel good, I would think. <laughs> sometimes you just, you know, sometimes you yeah. knock the eight ball in the pocket. It just, it just yep. rolls in and you just keep going, you know. You don't, just got to you know. keep going. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask, you know, because of the situation, just how's it going? Uh, where are you? Are you in Brooklyn right now? Well, actually, I'm, I I don't stay in Brooklyn all the time. I'm in New Jersey mm-hmm. now. Oh, you're in New but, Jersey. Okay. Yeah. But I'm heading to Brooklyn. Actually, actually, I stayed here because I needed to do this, but then I'm going to Brooklyn right after. Oh, I see. It was a very special trip. Uh, is... Uh, uh, is most of your family still in Brooklyn? Because you grew up in Brooklyn, right? Um Yeah, well, Brooklyn and Queens. Most of my family is mm-hmm. between New York and Philly. Okay. So um, uh, I, I have a few cousins in Brooklyn, and, and my brother, my younger brother, who I'm close to, lives in Harlem. And right. my sister, I have a sister in Queens. And um, uh, let's see. And then I have like three sisters in Philly. Mm-hmm. I have a couple in Jersey. We're between New York and Philly. Between New York, Trenton, and Philly, we got all three cities covered. Guys got it covered. So a lot of uh, Sixers and Knicks fans hanging out in there with a few Straggler Nets fans. uh, Uh, Yeah, there's there's very very few Nets fans. I'm a little bit of a Nets (laughs) fan, but mostly uh, Sixers fans. Mostly Sixers. We've kind of evolved over to the Sixers. Well, James, then we could go back to talking about, you know, Dr. J, of course. You can talk about the Sixers. Of course, yeah. Roosevelt, Long Island's greatest son. Yeah, yeah, you got to tell yeah, that. Yeah, he was one serving. of the. Yeah, he was, he was fantastic. He went from the Nets to the Sixers, and yeah. neither squad has been the same since. I don't know. <laughs> you know. He's not talked about. I mean, we're veering off, and but I don't think the, the doctors talked about enough when people talk about the great players. Do you agree with that? Well, you, part of the problem is that you know the NBA wasn't what it is now. Yeah, the NBA. You know, when I was coming up was. Was a league that, uh, I mean, there were there were a lot of black fans, right. and you know, a fair amount, of, fairly large number of white fans too. But it wasn't on TV all the time. And the doctor was, he was more of a street legend, and who became a TV sort of exactly. known on TV. But he, he, and people like the goat and others in New York were just 
Errol they Manning. They were the Rucker League. Yeah, they were the they were yeah. the, they were the stars. I mean, but the doctor yeah. was also the doctor was also he was and remains a man of class and dignity. Completely. Which a lot of these cats don't have now. Well, he was a legit legend. By legit, I mean he wasn't just playground, you know, he went to that next level. And because he was in the ABA first, like I never got to see those games. So his legend status kind of rose, his mythic status, you know, for us in the playground. Like we'd see clips sometimes, but we never, you know, I lived in California. I didn't get a chance to see the doctor in those days live or anything or oh, that's or, interesting. Or, or, or see the true coverage of it like you did on the East Coast. There was some super bad players in the ABA. I mean, Moses, Mo, Moses Malone. There were some dynamite players in the ABA that never really got. Well, Moses Malone won a championship with the doctor. Yeah, he eventually got his due. Right, but there was some. You know, it was just one of those. The ABA was a wonderful league. It was oh, just, uh, you know, it's too bad. Well, if, if you're in New York, you saw it. You know, because know. you could see it. Rub it know. in. Virginia yeah. <laughs> Squires and all those yeah. squads. So how's it going out there? What's your take on the situation that we're in right now with the protests and the George Floyd thing? Do you have an observation on any of that or just reflections on it? Or, Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I this problem with the police department and, and, mm-hmm. and African-Americans and, and Latino people has been going on since I've been alive in mm-hmm. New York and, uh, and Philly, too. Frank Rizzo mm-hmm. years and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a systemic problem that really is not I think when you look at the police and you don't look at the system the systemic problem you're really not looking far enough and deep enough. Mm-hmm. The problem really is the institutional racism has has become magnetized because of who the president is and because um you know this this country is changing the demographic is changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you know the power brokers and the corporate interests are really they're really worried about it. And so this guy, you know, the 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 uh, Swami head, the guy who runs the country, or supposed to, tries to, <laughs> has really has really pushed every single hate button he can. Mm-hmm. But the good news is that he's running out of power, and that you know, and hate is a machine that really needs a lot of diesel fuel. Uh, love, on the other hand, doesn't need much. You know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of energy to hate somebody all the time. Mm-hmm. So even those who say, you know, why are we forgiving? We're always forgiving. Oh, because forgiving means you can let go of the hate and keep living. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, I'm very proud of these young people for taking it to the street. And I, all of that's good. But if they don't yeah. vote, it don't count, really. Yeah. If they don't vote, it just don't count. We're starting to see some reforms that are happening in the absence of voting, too. Uh some people are just doing things, which is amazing, um, by executive order or this, that. But you're right. Voting is very important. Do you, do you feel like something's actually going to happen now as opposed to we've seen incremental things happen, but it always seems like it gets reset back? Um, well, you look, this happened during the Reconstruction. If you look at slavery and then you, know, you had black congressmen and senators and so forth, and then they, and all that got vanished by Jim Crow. We've never um, replicated those numbers, by the way. Uh, well, I mean, we may not mm-hmm. in, in our lifetime, in my mm-hmm. lifetime anyway, but we mm-hmm. will. I mean, that in the long run, we, you know, we've survived, I'm talking about the African-American community, has survived some crushing, crushing, almost lethal blows. Crack, which mm-hmm. I remember very well. Uh, AIDS, which still is a plague and really affected African-Americans incredibly. African-American males, it was just pitiful. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who died of AIDS. Yeah. Um, so, um, a lot of these problems are no longer just at, in the African American world. They're they're spread out now they're amongst white people and others, and Latinos, mm-hmm. of course, and um, and some of these people, a lot of them have decided that this is the time to make a, make a change. And I I think there is long term change. I think the question is how do you keep your foot on the gas? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think the first step is to deal with this gerrymandering and this. In this voting business, you have to remember that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. When Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman to become a congressman, mm-hmm. it's because a guy named Art Cooper and his wife, the Coopers, he became a, a newspaper publisher, but he was really a a businessman. He was just a guy who worked at Schaefer, which was the beer that we used to drink in New York. Schaefer, Schaefer is the that's hilarious. One beer to have when you're having more uh, than one. I used to love that because that. More than one. That that was just so cool. You know, the coolest jingle. Anyway, (laughs) he was the guy who figured out the gerrymandering in Bed Stuy was affecting 
the ability of African-Americans in Brooklyn to vote. And this was when Brooklyn was considered the jungle. Mm-hmm. So he went to court, they won, and they, 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 they basically selected a former daycare center worker, mm. by the way, to run for Congress, who happened to be a brilliant woman. I mean, you know, you put labels on people, doesn't mean nothing. Yeah. I mean, Shirley Chisholm was brilliant. And, um, but that happened because R. Cooper and several other, you know, smart, politically minded people figured out the system. So we have mm-hmm. to get these young people who are protesting now to when they put their picket signs away and can, when they can get their lungs back after being tear gas and rubber bulleted to say, mm-hmm. okay, now this is the system and this is how it works. And we got to get into the barbershops and the hair salons and get people to work out these problems so we can get this gerrymandering fixed and vote at the state level, city level, county level, and get the gerrymandering taken care of so, so our votes will count. Yeah, gerrymandering is insidious. And what a lot of people have to realize, too, is they have to fill out their census this year because the information from the census is where they determine a lot of these districts and where, you know, depending on where the balance of power is in your district, you know, some of these ridiculous lines are going to be drawn, you know. Uh, Of course. But, you know, some people are wary of things like the census, you know, for different reasons or whatever. Um, well, but, I mean, they they make it that way. They 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 yeah. said they make you scared. You know, they yes, make you scared. Exactly. You fill it out. You know, they're gonna come and get you. You know, but it's not true. So by filling out the census, you're arming yourself with exactly. the kind of legal recourse you need. You know, so exactly. But how did growing up in Brooklyn do you think shaped you as as an artist? You know, because you grew up. You said it was a jungle back then. Was it that way when you were a kid, or did you see it grow into that? Well, see, New York was different then. I mean, New York mm-hmm. was, um, first of all, everybody I knew in New York wanted to get out. You know, this mm-hmm. whole thing of being, I'm in the Big Apple, by the way. You had no yes. car, there was no prom, none of that crap, man. No college yeah. sports. You didn't have, you had the Knicks, the Mets, the Dodgers had left. You know, yeah. white people were fleeing the city as fast as they could, yeah. if they could afford to. And so the rest of us were just stuck with each other. And it was hot and it was funky and it was crowded. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And um, when, you know, looking back, so it wasn't, I mean, we were forced to get along Mm -hmm. and so, and we were forced to integrate because we, you know, there was no, there was no, you couldn't just not go to school. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, my mother managed the bureaucratic mess that was in New York city public school system. So we always went to integrated schools. We got on buses and went to white neighborhoods where, they didn't want us, and the teachers marked us down for the least mistake, and so forth. But we managed because we always had, we had good white friends. We had, we just managed, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us who were from from New York in those years managed because housing and life was just a lot easier. Now, right. housing is the big one. That, you know, how you can't you can't get a place to live in New York anymore. It's crazy. So that's the big thing, you know. When when Giuliani and his friends. Opened New York, cleaned up 42nd Street. That's the real story. The cleaning up of 42nd Street, the cleaning up of Manhattan. When they say cleaning up, that means poor folks get out. That means mm-hmm. any poor folks who are black, white, whatever, Latino, Puerto Rican, Dominican, get out. And when they did all that cleaning up, they cleaned out the middle class. Yeah. And so then everyone started either going to the South that they could afford to, or they just got stuck. And so when you see Poor people in New York, a lot of them are people who just didn't leave, couldn't leave, mm-hmm. had nowhere to go, uh, along with a fresh wave of immigrants who bring a whole bunch of great new energy. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same city, you know, it's not the same. Yeah. And also, I should say that the African-American presence in New York was really heavily influenced by the South when I was a boy. Mm-hmm. Everybody's daddy came from Alabama, North Carolina, <laughs> Tennessee. Right. I mean, nobody was from New York. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> nobody's parents were from New York. Yeah, there weren't multiple generations from Harlem, right? Yeah. No, no, no. You yeah. know, so the the multiple generation of Harlemites was snobs, man. They were like, you yes. know, what are you doing here? The Renaissance. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> That's very funny. There's Southern roots all around. You know, my family's from Chicago, and the Southern roots are from Mississippi. A lot of Mississippians went up there. Uh uh, Louisiana, even Kentucky. A lot of those people moved to Chicago, and then. 
you know, we grew up in California and you had a lot of people from Texas and Louisiana and that Southern movement. It's interesting how the Black Southern movement had its fingers like in so many different places. But the the roots, I think the way we relate as Black Americans, and a lot of this is in your writing, I think, especially in your dialogue, you know, we're kind of connected by some of those Southern roots, I think, you know. Oh, there's no question. Uh, there's no yeah. question. In my church, everybody, you know, well, we're, we're like a generation away from where our parents and grandparents were, but we're still connected by the way we talk and about what we believe and how we think and act. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of the traditions that have, have gone by the wayside. You know, if you see the old Aretha Franklin documentary and it shows the mm -hmm. Baptist church in LA uh, and they are throwing down hard, you oh, know, yeah. that's how yeah, they, they did it in Chicago around. and that's how oh, they yeah. do it. And that's how they did it in New York. I mean, although I would say Chicago as good as the LA community choir was, and they were fantastic. When you go to the first church of deliverance in Chicago, well, Pilgrim yeah. Baptist, those two places, man, I was in those places in the eighties. I have a buddy who used to, <laughs> and went to school and he, he took, man, those places were, they were on fire. I mean, they were just, uh, in terms of gospel music, Chicago, there's nowhere. Yeah, they weren't Chicago. around. Yeah, that's just, it's just the center of it all. And but yeah, uh, they, they, you know, North, North Chicago yeah. is like North Mississippi. It's like North Alabama. Oh, completely. So, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And your parents, your your mom was white, which you, you wrote about in your first book, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, did your parents start a church? Was that Yeah, yeah, they started a church? church in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. This church uh -huh. still exists. That's where I'm going this afternoon. I got to take care of really? some things. Yeah, it's a little tiny church, you know. It's yeah. in the... Red Hook Housing but Projects. They uh, had a certain place in the community. I mean, we just had a small congregation, still have a small congregation, you know. Uh -huh. Baptist church, not a holy, not a sanctified. Right. Uh, just a regular straight up and down Baptist church. Just a, a part of the community. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Still, still, still part of the community. Yeah. That's great. And uh, so, James, you started your career as a journalist. What, what made you want to be a journalist? Well, see, I, I went to Oberlin. I studied music as, a, as oh, yeah. an undergrad. And then when I got out of school, when I was getting ready to graduate, I, I had to decide whether to go to graduate school in music or journalism. And I, Nelson Mandela was um, was the South Africa business of apartheid had shown itself. This is in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And I got involved in the Nelson and Mandela, free Nelson Mandela movement. And I became socially aware. And mm -hmm. I decided I wanted to go to journalism school because I wanted to change the world. So I went to Columbia University and got my master's in journalism. And then I worked as a journalist for nine years. Mm -hmm. And then I quit and became a musician for another nine or 10 years. Why did and you quit? Uh, because journalism was not creative enough for me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I worked at uh, the Wilmington News Journal, the Boston Globe. Uh, People magazine, and then my last job was at the Washington Post in the style section. I was a feature mm -hmm. writer there. And, I mean, there were a lot of talented people in that newsroom, but it wasn't creative enough for me. Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I felt stifled creatively, you know. I, I didn't really like going out and covering the, you know, the gospel, you know, the, the McDonald's gospel convention or whatever, <laughs> gospel singing gospel. I mean, that, you know, I'm, I mean, I covered Michael Jackson for almost a year for People magazine, exclusively. Wow. When you he were on was the road big. with them? Yeah, yeah, for about seven months, yeah. That must have been crazy. It was. It was It was crazy. I was young. You know, he, Michael Jackson's my age. So I was 25 or 26. That's when he did Thriller. That was the Thriller tour. It was called right. the Victory Tour. Him and his brothers, all of I them. I remember that. I remember That was a killing tour. tour, man. Yeah, I was in yeah. L.A. I went to That's L.A. That's when they the were still time. doing these dances in that line. <laughs> you know, people can't see me right now, but they would do the point and do the head. And then lean, then the lean in the head. And then just the head. The point was gone and just yeah, the head. Yeah, but you know something. Yeah. They were hot. They were hot. Oh, yeah, you know, the absolutely. The Jacksons were really heavily influenced in terms of their choreography by a group that people don't really think that much about, but the Temptations. Yes. If you look at the Temptations, yes, you know, and the Four Tops, the way they used to step. Oh, yeah. The and Jacksons the had it. Like, yeah. Oh, the Pips, too. Yeah. All those yeah. cats, they were so bad. I mean, they oh, were yeah. so... But anyway, yeah, that's when... Um, that was a pretty wild tour. Don King was on that tour. Al Sharpton. Don King? Uh, yeah, Don King was he King the promoter, was promoter of it? He was the promoter. He was one of the promoters, wow. yeah. He got his yeah. fingers in everything. 
Well, you know, I, having been sued many times, you know, too many times, I'm careful about what I say about anybody these days. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, I would, you know, I, 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 I saw a lot during that tour. Yeah. Um, and I really liked uh, Michael Jackson and his family. Did you hang I out with said, Michael at all? Did you never, get a chance never, to talk no, to no, him or anything? Talk to him one yeah. time. I saw him rehearse. Uh-huh. I was, so I worked my way into getting to the rehearsals and I saw those several times, I'd say maybe a couple weeks worth of watching him rehearse. And yeah. he was a he was a meticulous he was a meticulous uh, musician. Yeah. Really, he was a, he was a spectacularly spectacularly gifted person when it yeah. came to presenting himself. Every single note was something he he pondered over, and, he, and mm-hmm. but and also, and then I talked to him like one time, you know, just because there, there was a lot of pressure to get get him to do interviews and all this business. And he was really gracious, but I never really got to know him. I got to know his mother. She mm-hmm. was very nice. Uh, I don't remember that much of it because it was. I hate. I hated the job at the time. Wow! Wow! Can you imagine that? You had to follow the Jacksons, and you hated the job. Well, because the Jacksons <laughs> really didn't trust me, and I really? didn't. I, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean they didn't trust you? Because I had to be a journalist, man. I couldn't be like, you know, I couldn't be their friend, you know. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, when I wrote stuff that they didn't agree with. You know, they get pissed off, you know. <laughs> and uh, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, you, you're right. not there to be their publicist. You're there to be a journalist. I mean, I was working for sure. People Magazine. People Magazine in those days was very exacting. Journalism was different then. Mm-hmm. You know, people were Wait, really people journal- had standards? Standards yeah, in those right. days? <laughs> <laughs> that you know, what you, you had to, to say? Yeah, yeah, you had to fact check stuff. It wasn't like what? you could just... You know, conjecture and then, you know, say, yeah. make a, a lie and go across the internet. That didn't work like yeah, that. Yeah, just post it on Twitter. Right? You get your butt suit off, you know, real quick. And so oh, completely. it was really a lot of pressure. They didn't like them. They hated the magazine, actually. And they mm. thought I was an Uncle Tom, you know, when I first showed oh, up. Man. Because they they oh. said, well, you know, we had never seen a black writer from People magazine, blah, blah, blah. But I was cool. I mean, it, it was just a like, job to you me. Guys, you guys are Jehovah's Witnesses, and you're pointing this at me? Yeah, really, man. <laughs> how, how dare you? But no, they were good, they were good people. I mean, after, eventually, yeah. we, we came to, they came to respect me. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I just did the job. And, um, mm-hmm. and when the job, when the tour was over, I, I pretty much quit the magazine. I, maybe I stayed yeah. there a month or two after. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was not what I wanted to do. So. It was interesting, as years later... You decide to write about James Brown, who Michael Jackson actually patterned himself, his dancing when he was real little, like the five-year-old Michael Jackson, would try to imitate James Brown, you know, like especially that slide dance that he would do that James Brown would do. Yeah, yeah. Which, well, which, the, which, which became the Psychedelic Shack, which um, a little wow, more man, you take, Wow, you're just taking that's me really, all the way back. That's man. really going back. Remember wow, that Psychedelic man. Shack? Yeah. I, had, that, I had hair back then. It was a whole different time. <laughs> wow. But uh, um, so, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, I did the James Brown book. That was a book that that pretty much fell into my lap. I'm, I'm again, I, you know, I, that book drew a, a lawsuit as well. You have to be careful when you're dealing with really? people in Hollywood. Yeah, mm-hmm. because um, look, one of the good things that has happened to me is that because I can write fiction, because right. I can write outside the box, I don't need to do stories like Michael Jackson or James Brown. I felt it then, and I felt it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I just, but I, that James Brown book, i tell you what they did have in common. They both left a lot of money to help mm. people out. Ja- oh, Michael Jackson good. did. I, I read that. I, I don't know if it, to be a fact, I read it in today's journalism. I'm assuming it's true. And I would think so because Michael was a very nice person. And James Brown, I know for a fact left, you know, he left his entire state to, to help, uh, established a scholarship for poor white and black children in South Carolina and Georgia. Unfortunately, none of that money has reached a single kid as far as I know, because it's been tied up in lawsuits Mm -hmm. with his family and, you know, other people, but they were both well-intentioned people and they both had to do a lot to cross the racial barrier to get, to get famous. And they had, they had to make great sacrifices. Um, And I, one could argue that those sacrifices cost them dearly. In fact, if you look at all three, Michael Jackson, Prince, and um, James Brown, one could argue that in fighting through and crossing through the racial divide, it, it took so much of the, you know, it's like the, mm-hmm. it's like Star Trek where they said, Captain, the shields are at 20%. What are you going to do, Scotty? And then there's no more. Just keep it going. And I think eventually 
it pushed them all into into the kind of difficulty that made them vulnerable to uh to illness and death. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, James Brown arguably may have been the most resilient in some ways because he, I mean, he of course was performing in the segregated South when he started and he had a legion of those young white fans early on. That was kind of unprecedented. I mean, little Richard had some of that, but James Brown to come out with soul in the way that he did, which is what it was called back then. Of course, there was nobody like James Brown at that time. Um, cutting across the color lines, you know, by the time, you know, Michael and Prince came along, it was a little more common, although Michael took it to a whole nother level. Right. Um, but I wonder if Michael's, I think, I feel like his thing, I don't know how much racial has to do with it as much as maybe psychology or, or other issues, you know, but, uh, but the world that James Brown went through for a fact, you know, um, sludging through the mud of that Prince, on the other hand, that's so funny. We get in this discussion. Prince, mm-hmm. Like I remember when Prince started out, I think he opened for the Rolling Stones like in the early 80s or something. And people mm-hmm. didn't know who Prince was. Black people knew who he was. But, you know, that was a stadium for white people mostly. Some black people, of course, Stones right. fans. But Prince got booed opening for the Rolling Stones, if you can believe it. And those many of those same white people were his fans later on. But it's it's funny how things like that were rejected out of him unconsciously by most people. I wonder if that affected Prince at all, you know, during his career. Cause he, he got it in a different way, of course, than, um, than the others got it. Well, I, Prince was living in a lot of pain, but, but let's spin back to Michael Jackson first. What the thing about people don't realize about Michael Jackson was that when he was, when he was moving to his popular, he was finished. The Jacksons had outgrown being the kid boy wonders. They were right. done. And Michael Jackson, he had to become a teenage phenomena. And yeah. then and, and he had to push through as a teenager. And then what he did was he had to get on MTV. And, you know, people forget that MTV in those days, blacks oh, were not welcome on Segregated, yeah. Yeah, so he, he blew that door open with a bazooka. Now, with James Brown, it's a little different because James Brown's career, much of it was created by the musicians who created his music. And people don't even know who they're, you know, Fred Wesley, Pee Wee Russell, Pee Wee Ellis, uh, Maceo Parker gets a lot of credit, but there were some others who really mm-hmm. had a lot to do, particularly particularly Pee Wee Ellis, who's still alive, and he's about mm-hmm. 80 years old. He wrote a lot of that stuff, Cold Sweat, mm-hmm. uh, Say It Loud. That's Pee Wee Ellis. You know, he loud, was a bad man. dude, yeah. man. And so, mm-hmm. and James Brown did things in his band that nobody could do now. He rehearsed mm-hmm. his band for hours. I mean, if they did a hit at the Apollo and he heard mm-hmm. something he didn't like, once this, the, the, the hall was empty, he'd bring the band back and they'd rehearse and he, he'd do stuff that cats wouldn't put up with now. He had two drummers. You know, he'd wear one drummer out. You know, Clyde Stubblefield, who was his drummer, died recently. I mean, a lot of those people should be lionized the way we mm-hmm. Absolutely. lionized Jasmine. I mean, they, and the, but Prince is different because Prince, Prince was in a lot of pain and he, he was trying more than both of those. I think Prince really made inroads into the whole business of what we are racially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he consciously did it, but he was in so much pain, and it was so apparent that he really had a good heart, mm-hmm. despite the fact whatever his music and even despite what he said, you could see he had a good heart. I mean, he was a bad cat musically. He was. Um, yeah. and, I mean, I think he had more musical talent than both James Brown and Michael Jackson. But James mm-hmm. Brown was the king, no question. But if mm-hmm. you look back, you know, I someone would tell you who knows Louis Jordan say Louis Jordan was the king. Right. Louis Jordan yeah, yeah. was super bad and he was he was bef- and James Brown listened to him. You know right. so it, it it's a long tree of of musical life, but all three of them deserve credit for what they did. I loved hear, uh, hearing about music from you. One of the uh, uh did you ever see this video by the way, James, of James Brown inviting Michael Jackson and Prince on stage? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. 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 I thought it was, that was great. Cr- yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, Prince. I mean, Michael Jackson came to yeah. James Brown's grave. He came to, when James Brown died. He came to uh-huh. Augusta, uh, and he spent the night sitting with James Brown's body. Wow. Uh, he, stay, he stayed there till five in the morning. Wow. And then he went to the service. Yeah, he was really deeply mm-hmm. affected by. I, you know, these people are like dinosaurs, man. They walk alone. And yeah. he understood the space that James Brown lived in, right. as he did on as he understood the space that Prince lived in. I felt really bad for him, and I felt bad when Michael Jackson died. I really, mm-hmm. I mean, even though I just feel like you know he was 
I never believe. I haven't seen this Neverland business. I never mm-hmm. believed that he did any of those things. That they, now, it might be true, blah, blah, blah. I'm just saying from my perspective, having never seen the, the documentary, whatever they said, he was an extremely gullible, nice person. Mm-hmm. And I find it hard to believe that he did some of the things he was accused of doing. Now, because I don't have the, any facts, I can only say when I was on the road with him, I never saw anything like that. What I did see was that he got extraordinary hate threats. Mm-hmm. And we went to Texas. They almost canceled the concert. You got, and I was on an elevator one time when I was at the Michael Jackson tour. I can't, I, mean, I forgot all about this till just now. We were coming down the stairs, I'm coming down the elevator, me, I was in the back of the elevator and then there were like three white people in front of me. And then these girls managed to get on the floor where they thought Michael Jackson was, but he wasn't. So they got on the elevator and they, they pressed the button and then they got off the next floor. There's three black girls, you know, they were giggling uh-huh. teenagers. And when they got off the elevator, the, these three white people, was, they were standing in front of me. They didn't see me behind them. <laughs> and one of them said to the other one, he said, there was a man and a, a woman in between them and another man. He said, I'm sick of niggas, I'm sick of Pepsi, and I'm sick of Michael Jackson. Right there. Uh, wait, I'm sick of Pepsi, did he say? <laughs> yeah, because Michael Jackson had a, he had a Pepsi. He had a Pepsi endorsement. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> oh, my God. Said, That's Fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, what can I do? I was standing there, you know, um, I didn't say anything, you know, I didn't say a word. I just, I, I, you know, I picked my battles. I wasn't going to, you know, Dallas, Texas, you know. Yeah. Could have said, yeah, I hate, I hate Pepsi too. Man. <laughs> yeah, I could have said, well, I'm a Coca-Cola man myself. Oh, yeah. yeah. But no, the niggers we can agree on. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anyway, but that, that's the kind of, that's the kind yeah. of, um. Uh, that you don't incidental, know what to these yeah, yeah, that incidental racism that you know showed no shame in those well, days. Well, look, you yes. know, it's it's how you it's how you deal with it, really. It's how yes, you deal with it, absolutely. You know? And you know what's um, I find interesting about your work too is you like to write about the past. Like you'll go way back there. A couple of your books, of course, a song yet sung about uh, the enslaved woman. I think it was based on Harry Tubman. I think right, yeah, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, the good Lord Bird, your classic based right. on... Um, John Brown. Yeah, John Brown. If, what is it about that period that intrigues you? You know, do you, um, do you like writing about that? Do you like going into that thing or what is it? Is, are you a history buff or what takes you A back little to? bit. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I, one of the things that's interesting is that when African-Americans were segregated, uh, there was a more of a... Uh, there was there was a little more dignity, at least in my opinion, to African American life. Uh, you okay, know, do you want to explain now, a little more? Yeah, sure. Now you know you wave some dollars in anyone's face, and then they they suddenly become, thank you Jesus. It's all about mm-hmm. Jesus, and it's not really about the betterment of themselves. I mean, there was there was a time when the culture really just where, where people would fight to to get an education and fight to. Mm-hmm. To uh, to to show improvement and fight to show dignity and 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 morality, mm-hmm. and now you know um, you know every time there's a, a Walmart opening at four a.m. with a giveaway, you look and see how many people there at four o'clock in the morning trying to get new tennis shoes and something, and they're black. A lot of them are. Now I'm not mm-hmm. against that. I mean, I think that you know if you're an impressed person and you need your son really needs tennis shoes, that's great. But I'd rather see that line lining up outside the library, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and until that happens, we're never going to change the systemic police violence. Until that kind of thing happens, we can forget it. You know, mm-hmm. we walk around talking about bling and Little Wayne and all that other bullshit. We ain't never going to get no place. I'm sorry. I'm sure Little Wayne's a nice guy. Blah blah blah. Good, good. I'm glad. He's, I'm glad he's a nice guy. Well, he's mm-hmm. just the guy who sings songs. We need mm-hmm. to go to the library and figure out what Malcolm X was talking about and what Martin mm-hmm. Luther King was talking about, who Marcus Garvey was. Not only that, who we are culturally. I mean, right. most black people don't even know who Sonny Rollins is, and Sonny Rollins is still alive. Yeah, uh, they don't know who Louis Jordan. They no sense of history, mm-hmm. and um, you know there are other communities that that look. When you look across the fence and you see the other communities, you think everything's good over there. It's not. You know, all Jews aren't the same. They don't all agree. You know, all Italians don't sit there and watch The Godfather together and eat like they do. And, the, you know, they, they're as disjointed as any as any group. Of course. But but the ones that have a special issue are the people of color in this country. That would be mm-hmm. black and brown people. 
And thus you have to come up with means and ways to, um, to address that problem. And one of the things I do in my church is I have a music program. We mm-hmm. teach kids how to play music. We, we demand the discipline, the excellence, the, the discipline that music demands. We demand it of these children so they understand that practice makes you better a little bit at a time. And then right. learning takes place a little bit of time. So that's really, really what needs to happen in terms of the community. And that's really not a, a, a white black problem. That's mm-hmm. that's just a, uh, uh, an, you know, that's an inner problem that needs to be dealt with vis-a-vis the parents and the, the families. Yeah. And uh, Deacon King Kong, one of the things that, by the way, your book, it's it, it makes me laugh. And then, you know there's agony in it. There's all sorts of things in it. But what I find interesting is you're able to present a community that I feel is gone, you know, because communities change, you know, over time, I'm talking about all communities, not just a black community. And like the way people talk to each other, the way they relate, even the way blacks were in kind of relationship to white people was just a little different. Even Absolutely, <laughs> like the yeah. period of Deacon King Kong. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's hard for people to relate to that until they, they feel the flesh and bones when like they're reading a book like yours. You know? That's a good point. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true. And I, the reason why whites and blacks talk differently when, they, when mm-hmm. I was, when we were younger and when I was younger is that we were forced to talk to each other. We were right. forced to engage. We just didn't have phones and stuff and, you know, Twitter where you can just hide behind some, a cell, you know, a computer screen and just say whatever you, you had to be responsible for what you said mm-hmm. because you couldn't just say something anonymously. That was one thing. But the other thing was that we just were forced to be together and we didn't have as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and also at that time in the 60s, white people were really interested. In, I mean, in a general way, there just was a general shame that came with racism. Mm-hmm. It was There was a general shame that, well, you know, something is not right. We Let's just see what we can do. I don't think that that, shame exists anymore. Exists for some people. But for others, it's, you know, they're so hard put, they're like, they're, they actually believe that because LeBron James is a millionaire, all blacks are millionaires. Mm-hmm. There's 32, 35 million black people in this country. You know, <laughs> they see, you know, I, I remember hearing a white sports announcer, a very famous one in New York say, oh, if you like Michael Jordan, you can't be racist. Now, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to respond to that kind of stupidity. America loved Joe explain, Lewis, but there was a lot of racism going on. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a systematic problem. I mean, if you go around with statues of Jeb Stewart and General Lee, if you're Jewish, if there were statues of Hitler and his generals going around, you know, standing all over the place, you'd be upset. Mm-hmm. So African-Americans have become used to this kind of racism. There's a kind of language we speak among, we speak amongst each other that just said that it's kind of coded that we know this is what the, you know, but... Um, these young people are just not having it. And it's mm-hmm. surprising to me too, because I could live with those statues. I don't care. They don't bother me because I know who I am. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these young people are saying, you know what? We don't even want to see this. And yeah. they have a right, they have a right to tear it down. It's, 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 look, we've been fighting the civil war since the civil war ended. And it's mm-hmm. time to, for it to end. Yeah, it's been an uncivil war. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, Deacon King Kong for a second, too. Um, Sparkcoat, your protagonist, um, interesting character. This is a man also from a different era, you know. Um, what did you, where did you base him on? I mean, he starts off by, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything for people, but he starts off by killing a notorious figure. And uh, he's kind of mourning the death of his wife by continuing to have a relationship with her, you know, and, and kind of in real time and everything. Where did that, where did that character come from? I, I'm, everybody in, in this country has a, some uncle who shows up, uh, you know, at Christmas time and takes his teeth out or an aunt who has, <laughs> you know, an aunt who has 50 cats or, you know, we all right. got a cousin who got one eye and, you know, the other guy's is glass and he looks at you cockeyed. You think he's, so we all have one of those. And every church has got a deacon or two or three, right. you know, who you don't want to catch them on Saturday night, you know, if they call you know, cause they might not be as sanctified yeah, you, and holy as you thought. You lose your faith. Right. right. So <laughs> what I wanted to set up at the beginning where he shoots this, uh, shoots the most notorious drug deal in the projects is mm-hmm. the setup is sort of comical 
voice that allows the reader to read through the story and laugh and not think this is like a, a book about gangsters or something. You know, it's just really a right. book about a community and, and mm-hmm. all the odd people that live there. Um, mm-hmm. But he's based on a lot of people that I know, my godfather, my I have uncles that that were like that. I have a lot of people, man, who were you know who were just funny. You know, drank too much. My godfather mm-hmm. didn't drink. He used to drink, mm-hmm. but he stopped drinking. But you know, right. uh, the whole business of just getting drunk and doing crazy stuff, and then and people being used to you being drunk. You know, just the right. whole thing of like the drunk guy no staggering deal. around the neighborhood. Big deal. There goes old Pete. There he goes. You know, he's. Hey Pete, what you doing? Ah, oh, oh, stay in school. What's the matter with you? You know, <laughs> Mudbone, right? Yeah, yeah, Mudbone. That's right, Richard <laughs> yeah. Price, Mudbone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I like to compare you. I think others have, you know, August Wilson, our great playwright, in the way that you guys are able to capture periods of time and just we feel like we're there, you know, in in your writing. How do you how do you breathe life into people? Like that, because it, and here's what I mean by breathing life. To me, a lot of incidental things about life just get forgotten. Like the the manner, like like some of the things that are particular to that time and that day that are just in the air that just go away. You know, like do you do research when you're doing these things, or is it mainly from from uh, memory or stories or that type of thing? A blend of both, mm-hmm. and I've never strayed far after I got divorced. Um, you know, I, I began to, to come back. I got married in my church, you know, my, mm-hmm. my parents' church, little church in Brooklyn. And then after I got divorced, I just got back into the church. And I asked God to help me out. And I, wow. I just said, if you help me out, Lord, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Get me out of this. And that's really what happened. And so I just stayed in the church. I stayed around the community. And I, like I said, I started this program, so I'm there every week. Um, I have my apartment is just about 20 blocks away, uh, in, in Sunset Park, which is near Red Hook. It's, you know, it's mostly Spanish, uh, and Chinese neighborhood. When I say Spanish, I mean, you know, Hispanic, like Latino. And, Mm -hmm. um, so I hear stuff and I'm around people all the time and I love it. I mean, I never thought that I would be, um, you know, back in Red Hook and, you know, I just never, but you know, God just takes you where you're supposed to go. And I Mm -hmm. guess my point is that, um, I'm happy there. And so I hear stuff and it reminds me of what happened before and lots of mm-hmm. things have changed. But some things are not, believe it or not, a lot is the same. Like in New York, mm. you know, parents still go the extra mile to make the, make sure the kids get an edu- education. Mm-hmm. Um, they still do a lot of stuff. They still stand out in front of the building, walk them to the bus stop, stand there, exhausted mothers waiting for the bus, you know, make sure they get on that bus, you know, they walk them to the grocery store, make sure they stand, I mean, walk past the most hardcore junkies and all. And, you know, you got your hardcore, you know, drug addicts or troublemakers who know which families to leave alone mm. because they, you know, because they got a cousin among them or, you know, they, there's a big brother there that fights back or, you know, there's just, there's just the same dynamic. It's just that people are even poorer now. Mm. They have even less than when I was a kid. That's amazing because, you know, there's this dynamic, James, that's out there where I was born in 61, so just a little younger than you, but uh, same time period, basically, where it feels like some things have gotten better, but some things have gotten worse. And I'm like, how how is that possible? <laughs> well, it's possible because our institutions have begun to t- deteriorate and there's only room at the other institutions for a certain number. And do you mean like community institutions? Community, the church, Mm -hmm. the church, businesses, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, stores, all these things that once supported African-American and Latino life are Mm -hmm. gone. They support, uh, you know, there was a time when the Koreans would run all the grocery stores. Now they've they've moved out of that. And now you got your your so-called North Africans who who are doing the same thing. I mean, the institutions that supported us as kids don't exist anymore. And mm-hmm. so uh, you're stuck going to a big box store or some other kind of store to get a job. I mean, in Red Hook, the, you know, once the kids don't leave Red Hook, they, they, you know, even though the gentrification in my neighborhood has happened, they, they, the kids in Red Hook never leave because they know they're not welcome. And they're not. I mean, that's the problem. It's the de facto segregation of the poor, which, which includes, 
and the large number of black and brown people. And that's mm -hmm. really not their fault. Mm -hmm. And in order for that to change, we have to change how we think about each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't, you know, you can't just dangle out this business of you're going to be a basketball player. That's ridiculous. I mean, you know, the NBA one time was all Jewish players, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so, I covered that once. Uh, I didn't cover that back then, but I yeah, did yeah. a joke about that years ago. Um, you've worked with Spike Lee a couple of times. Any plans to work with Spike again? Uh, no, he's got, you know, Spike is doing his thing. He's got a new... Um, a new TV series coming out and it's hot. I read the script. It's very good. Mm -hmm. Spike wrote that. I think Spike wrote it with somebody else. Yeah. He seems to be re-energized. Look, people can say what they want about Spike, but Spike has opened the door for a lot of people in, uh, oh, completely. in Hollywood. Absolutely. Including, including me. He's done a lot for a lot of people. He's taken a lot of hits. He's yeah. kind of like a blend of Michael Jackson, James Brown and Prince. He's taken a lot of hits. You will never see him grimace. You'll ne he'll never let you see him hurt. Yeah. Uh, and well, I'm not saying he, he's hurt, but he's you know he's 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 a strong guy. He's a strong will person. It's because he's a Knicks fan. I mean, you have to be resilient. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> Get all the pain I don't know what he sees through. that. Like, that I mean, that's, really. worse, that's worse than all the racial pain. Come on, being a Knicks fan? Are you kidding? Well, me? <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to. I, I try to reconcile myself with the fact that. Um, because sports is gone, people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. And that makes it so important. I mean, people yeah. are paying attention. I I wish they I hope they don't start sports and you know for another six months so people can keep paying attention and read books and and, and listen to shows like this because people are listening. Yeah. This is for I, real. Speaking of Spike, I went back and looked at Malcolm X again and let me tell you something. That movie holds up in a way that is unbelievable. Well, of course. Denzel and Angela Bassett and that whole cast are fantastic. But that movie, I felt, was not appreciated at its time, especially on the award circuit, you know, for what it was. But, man. Um, uh, I agree. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's also, so good. Well, it, it, you think you, you think that's bad. If Check out Miracle of St. Anna. Well, Miracle of St. Anna, yeah. eight people saw it, and I got 11 brothers and sisters. Yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> that movie is really, really, that's the definitive African-American military mm -hmm. movie. And yeah. nobody saw it. And Spike talk, still talks about it. We still talk about it because it's a, yeah. it's a great movie. And, you know, it had trouble getting to, and Spike cashed in every chit he had to get it done because he had just done Inside Man, which was right. a big hit. And he went to Hollywood. He couldn't raise all the money to do it in Hollywood. He had to go to Italy to raise yeah. the money. But he got it done and he made a, did a great movie, but nobody yeah. saw it. You know, I remember uh, George Lucas trying to do Red Tails. <laughs> it's the same problem. It's like, this is George Lucas. How come George Lucas can't make this movie? You know, and... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Red Tails was was well-intentioned and, and it was a good yeah. movie. But I felt Miracle of Santa Ana was, went a little bit deeper. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What are you going to do? As stories are getting told. I'm happy. Yeah. About listen, that. I have no complaints. I mean, I've been, I've been just the luckiest cat in the world, man. I, you know, I make a living doing this and, uh, yeah. People read my books and, you know, I, this new book has gotten, it's gotten attention from an Oprah book club selection. That's just, yeah, it's great. That's just, that's just like blessing, you know? And guys, believe me, you have extra time. There's no excuse. You have to go out. You don't even have to go out. Just order Deacon King Kong from Amazon or wherever you order your books. Get it. Is there an audible version or uh, an audio uh, version? Do you read Yeah, it there's an audio version. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty Great. good. Pretty funny. Yeah. Read uh, by a very fine actor. Yeah. Oh, I, I I have to get the audio version now, especially after some of this dialogue is just so great. I want to hear it. Um, any advice for younger writers before we go, James? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's a need for young writers in uh, mm -hmm. in Hollywood and in the publishing business, and yeah. not just about your life. You know, it's not there's no such thing as keeping it real. Just read a lot of books. Read Bill Shakespeare. Read Toni Morrison. Read mm -hmm. William Faulkner. Read all the good writers. Read the Moby Dick by um, uh, uh, um, Herman Melville. Such, Melville. Herman Melville. Yeah, read. Melville, right. This is if you tell young writers that you know they they don't read enough. Yes. If they read more and don't watch TV, if you're going to watch TV, watch the old stuff, you yeah. know, like Gilligan's Island, all the old stuff where the screenwriters were good, <laughs> not this new stuff. 
By the way, this new stuff's no good. But yeah, there's it? a need for young writers. And finally, I would say young writers, they, they, they must rewrite. Rewrite yes. everything. Um, absolutely. That is solid advice, you guys. Read, read, read. Uh, so much of the world, like I was saying, just gets lost, but they're captured in the writing of a lot of these great authors, you know, the, the whole whaling industry that Melville talks about. And by the way, blacks played a major part in the whaling industry back in the 19th century. Good um, point. Very true. Yeah. Many of them were able to, you know, get free from slavery by doing, cause it was a very dangerous job whaling. It was very dangerous. Um, James and Bride, um, thanks so much. Such an honor having you on the show. Oh, a and, pleasure, uh, man. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to you and meet you after all these years. Thank yeah, you very much for I having know. me. And, yeah. the, and the best selected, Deacon King Kong, guys. I've told you, get the book and read it. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, James. Take care. All man. right. All right. Thank you. Thank you.